My name is Jordan Selleck. I'm the CEO and co-founder of 51 Labs. We're a digital marketing agency focused on the uh, lower middle market. And uh, the goal of today is, is really about when you are a new BD professional, what should you be considering? What, should, what are the common mistakes? Let's talk about compensation trends. Let's talk about the arc of a career in business development. So these are some of the questions that we'll be covering today. So let's go over to a little bit more background on us. Uh, we have a four-person full-time team. Uh, I did six years of investment banking. My wife, who uh, left her job as a lawyer last, uh, last month, is now full-time. She did 12 years in law and finance. Uh, we have a creative strategist who covers video and copywriting. Uh, Nicole's our account exec, does project management and events. Um, here are some of the clients that we have served. We're primarily focused on uh, the M&A and deal community, generally speaking. Here's some of these services that we cover. You know, HKW is one of our clients. We've done a lot of events with them, but also, for example, we're doing like 40 posts with them. Two of those posts alone got 100,000 views. Uh, from which they got 15 deal inbounds and around five of those were actionable. That was just for one post with Ryan. Uh, we do firm overview videos. You know, these are your 90 second to two minute videos. We come on site uh, to your, uh, at your office or at your port coast. And then we put that into the corporate overview videos. That usually takes, you know, three to four weeks to put together, depending on the timeline. Uh, we also have a different format, which can be either shot over Zoom or uh, on site, and this is called our quick creative, which just means that it doesn't take the four weeks to produce one video. You know, this is great for LP focused videos that you might wanna send privately. This is great for overviews that you might wanna sell, uh, uh, send to potential sellers. Um, with Middle Ground, we did six videos for the portfolio companies in six different states in 30 days. Uh, that was for their annual meeting last year. And that was during COVID. So it was uh, interesting to direct and produce everything. Uh, just like this, we produce a bunch of events. You can check out investorsandoperators.com for the replays of these events. And uh, feel free to reach out if you have other ideas that we should be doing, such as, you know, it's time women in private equity. We're doing part two in February and we have a bunch of other events that are coming up that we'll uh, distribute after this. Uh, I want to say how important veterans are to you know everything that we do. I've been spending the past four years working with vets. Um, started a nonprofit that is now up to a thousand members. And now I'm focusing on content community for a smaller group of veterans. Uh, two people are specifically looking for a job and an internship. Uh, Mike LaRay is a transitioning SEAL. Uh, he has his MBA. He has been working with an independent sponsor and he is looking specifically in Florida uh, for investment banking jobs, private equity jobs or on the credit side. Um, he, he does have experience working uh, in the, on the independent sponsor side, and he's looking for a job now. Uh, Zach Walters is a transitioning SEAL. He's getting his MBA at UCLA. He is actively looking for an internship. If you are interested in helping, please feel free to shoot me an email. Just jordan at 51vets.org or my 5149 labs email or LinkedIn, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just feel free to reach out, put veterans, and I'll respond, and we'll get the ball rolling. But this is really important, especially uh, getting how much veterans have, have done for our country. Investors and Operators podcast, our 50th episode was with Jay Jester, who's a partner at Plexus Capital. Check out investorsandoperators.com for all these events um, that have, have replays as well as the podcast and vlogs. 
Um, so now what I'd like to do is introduce our panelists. And before I do so, once again, please drop your questions into the Q&A here. We want to make this interactive and fun. Uh, but let's kick off with Jeremy Holland, who's the managing partner of origination at the Riverside Company. Jeremy, can you give a quick snapshot on Riverside and how long you've been doing BD? Sure. The Riverside Company has been around for 33 years. Uh, we might be one of the largest private equity firms in the world that's both global in scope, but remains focused on the small end of the market. Uh, I've been a private equity investor for about 23 years, uh, almost half of that in this role at Riverside. Awesome. Aaron Carroll is a partner at Braddock Matthews. Aaron, would you mind uh, revealing your video and just kind of giving a high level on uh, Braddock Matthews? and how long you've been working on the search side within BD. Sure, so Braddock Matthews, we're a retained uh, executive search firm and we focus exclusively on the buy side um, across a number of different client um, kind of categories, but spend a tremendous amount of time in and around the private markets. Um, and I would say across functions, business development, we've been very fortunate to be, um, I think early uh, recruiters in that space dating back over a decade now actually, nice. and um, have continued to be very active as the function has grown pretty dramatically, especially in the last five years or so. Awesome. And at the end of this event for the attendees, we're going to be talking about, you know, the compensation survey that they have, some of the key trends and the takeaways that Aaron has seen. Uh, next, Luke Johnson, who is partner and head of business development at Arcline Investment Management. Luke, awesome to have you on here. And would you mind giving a background on Arcline and just maybe a high level of your experience in BD? Sure. Great. Uh, thanks, Jordan. And thanks for uh, including me in this webinar. Um, Arcline was founded in the fall of 2018. We are a new firm, new fund. Uh, we're currently investing out of our first institutional fund of $1.5 billion. And um, we have two offices, San Francisco and New York. I'm in the New York office and, and run that office for us. Uh, as far as my background, I've been in private equity for 20 years now. Uh, spent 12 years at Platinum Equity in Los Angeles, and then spent six years at, um, at Sentinel Capital Partners in New York, and uh, joined Arcline in January of 2019. Great, thanks. All right, Scott Erickson, who's a principal and head of business development at Aurora Capital. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me, Jordan. So Scott Erickson, I've been at Aurora for about two years now uh, and spent the previous nine or so years at a firm called Agora's Group, also in Los Angeles. And Aurora manages just over $3 billion. We've been around since 1991. We're on our sixth private equity fund, which is uh, right around $1.7 billion, which we turned on last year. We focus on middle market deals and industrials, business services, and tech, generally between 100 to 500 million of enterprise value, really focused on niche market leaders. Cool. All right. Sheila Dharmarajan, who is a partner and head of IR and BD at ZMC, has a unique background. Sheila, awesome to have you. Uh, can you give a quick uh, snapshot of ZMC and your background? Yes. Great to be here. And Jordan, thank you so much for having us. Um, so ZMC, we are a middle market private equity firm based in New York. Uh, we focus exclusively on TMT. We've been around for 20 years. Three tenets to our strategy. First, that we are specialists. TMT is all we do. Second, we are incredibly operational. And then third, we work very, very closely with our portfolio companies. As for me, I joined ZMC about six years ago. 
Uh, before that, I had a stint in television reporting. So I was actually an, on air at CNBC and Bloomberg. But before that, I did have a investment background at Premira and also a banking background at DLJ. Great. Thanks a lot. All right. Matt Moran, principal and head of BD at Inverness Graham. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jordan. Um, Matt Moran, uh, principal and head of business development at Inverness Graham in suburban Philadelphia. Uh, we've been around for 20 years. We've raised about a billion dollars across four funds, uh, currently investing out of a recently raised $415 million fund for. Um, I've been at the firm uh, in the BD chair for about 10 and a half years. And prior to joining Inverness, uh, I was a growth equity investor at another regional fund here in Philadelphia, Laurel Capital Partners, uh, that I joined right out of undergrad. Awesome. All right. So let's kick this off with what is the one thing you wish you would have known when you first started in the BD function? And Aaron, for you, what is the first thing that everyone should know, given the hundreds of resumes of people you're talking to? <laughs> All right, uh, Luke, let's kick it off. Okay. Well, um, I think like some of my peers on this panel, I stumbled into uh, private equity. And I also stumbled into business development. I wasn't originally hired to do BD, but when I first moved into the role, I think one lesson that I needed to learn was it's, it's, it is about people at the end of the day, and it's not just about deals and capturing deals, number one. And number two, as I've, as I've um, matured in my career, it's also more about quality versus quantity. And I was at a firm where it was all about quantity and it was all about making sure you don't miss deals. And I think if I was to impart something, uh, some, a piece of advice to some of the young talent who are listening in is just focus on the relationships, focus on the quality of those relationships and focus on trying to differentiate yourself with those relationships so that they become highly impactful relationships for the long term. Do you think that is a function of the firm DNA or more the individual's choice or more of the team's choice? I'll, I'll plant that seed and we can kind of come back to it. I think it's a really interesting topic for us to unpackage as a, as a panel, um, but I'll throw that out there. All right, Jeremy, one thing you wish you would have known 23 years ago. Uh, uh, be a specialist, be your firm's expert in something, the go-to resource for some industry or some segment. And you don't need to be all things to all people. Uh, to Luke's point, it's not about touching every contact. It's not necessarily about capturing every deal. It's about getting great deals done. And that's what really matters at the end of the day. Matt, what about you? Yeah, I would say uh, two things. Um, you'll learn to appreciate how valuable your Marriott points are the more you do this <laughs> job. Um, and I would say internally, uh, you can never be too good of an ardent listener. Um, you know, communication is everything, regardless of your background. And you'll find that, um, you know, the better listener you are, the more people will come to you to, to kind of add value. Oh, I, I, I just want to dive down that, but I'm going to hold back. Okay, let's, let's keep on going. Um, Scott. Yeah, gosh. So when I started doing this 10, 10 years ago, um, the business, we traveled, right? But when we traveled, at least in my firm, it was to go see bankers in different towns. Maybe we'd go to an ACG event in a different town. But I didn't really focus on um, fostering real relationships with other private equity professionals and counterparts at other funds up until maybe just a few years ago. And fast forward, especially in this market, it, it's absolutely critical to have those 
relationships and have meaningful relationships, arguably more important than certain banking relationships. And so if I could rewind the clock, I would go 100 miles an hour, focused a lot more on that um, in my early days. So I'd, I'd encourage folks to think about that. Awesome. Sheila, six, six years you've been in the BD and IR position, unique background on the reporting side. You know, what do you think you wish you would have known maybe in the first couple of months in, in starting the job? You know, one thing I have definitely gained appreciation for is that BD is absolutely a marathon and not a sprint. I think whenever you come into a new job, you're very eager to get things done. You're very eager to like, you know, make a lot of relationships, do a lot of meetings, do a lot of travel, do a lot of conferences, which is all great and part of the job, but really have appreciation for it and be okay with the fact that these things are just going to take time. Deals don't happen overnight. Relationships don't get built overnight. Even a CRM for it to be useful to you takes time. It's going to take tinkering. It's going to take um, constantly kind of retooling and that's okay. That's the job. It's just, it's, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a totally a marathon. I think that brings up a good topic we can dive into, which is what is the ROI of a junior professional or mid-level and how do they need to be selling themselves and also the DNA of the firm on how they judge the success of that junior BD professional or mid-level. Um, we can come back to that also. All right, Aaron, in the hundreds and hundreds of resumes and people you've spoken to, what is one thing that you think people should have known as they were getting into the function? And then what is the number one mistake that new DBD professionals are making as they're trying to enter the profession? And we'll use that as a segue to the number one mistake people make in BD for the rest of the panel. Aaron, over to you. Um, so I think it's interesting. I, I think getting into business development, um, there are so many different lenses to the role today than there were 10 years ago. Um, and I think going in, um, even kind of building on what a number of you already said, going in as a listener, I think, and really striving to build credibility internally um, is, I think, just as important as external relationships, um, because that's where the success is, I think, just generally in private equity firms. Like, you need to have, um, you know, kind of a, a sponsor internally at some point um, in your career to be successful. Um, on the other question, um, I would say, you know, stay longer, than, like put your head down and create some sort of track record. Um, I think mistakes that are made, I mean, there is definitely a imbalance between the supply demand curve for business development professionals. And I mean, fortunately, the pool has grown, right? I mean, business development, I think is a very committed function within a committed to function within um, the asset class, which is fantastic. Um, but I think making, building a career long-term in this function now, which thanks to many of you on screen um, is possible, chasing, you know, kind of a, a quick promote is not always the best answer because I think it does over time probably lessen or cheapen kind of your relationships and kind of integrity in the market. Let's keep on going with the theme of mistakes. <laughs> okay. Uh, first year, what are the newbie mistakes that you've seen uh, either you made when you were starting off or that you've seen uh, people make? And let's just kind of get those out there. Uh, Jeremy. 
I think it goes back to that, the quality over quantity. People often uh, are instructed to hit a certain number of phone calls or meetings or something, and they're mistaking productivity and activity. And at the end of the day, you want to build specific closings. And so for my team, I'd rather they have uh, a 90 minute in-depth two hour, three hour meeting with somebody rather than a whole string of 20 minute speed dating sessions, as they call them at, at these deal source events. At the end of the day, people want to do business with their friends and focusing in on really powerful, unique relationships help you win. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to win deals, not to see deals. Well, let's talk about that quality and quantity topic a little bit more. Um, you know, Aaron and, and others, do you believe that the general DNA of firms out there has adjusted so that juniors and mid-levels are being judged and based and their performance being based upon long-term thinking? I, I probably am not the great person to judge because I'm not managing a junior business development professional. Um, so I don't know if better insight yeah. there. Yeah, I, I do think it depends on the firm and what the mandate is. Look, we can all agree that there's different models out there for business development. Um, I, I think I've actually been at three different platforms where there were three distinct models. Um, what, I, what I think is important for some of the younger talent uh, listening in is this three, the way I think about it, and I think some of you may have heard me talk about this before, is I think of business development in three broad categories. There's the deal collector, which is really focused on the quantity game and trying to canvas the market and you know, leave no stone unturned. And all they're really doing is collecting deals. I think as you mature in your career, you then transition into what I call a deal connector. And a deal connector is someone who really understands how to connect the dots between relationships, can really understand what's the right deal to pursue, how to position around that deal and what have you. And then I would argue all of us on this panel are deal influencers. I think that should be the goal. Uh, the goal is you want to have the ability to influence the outcome of a deal. And you know, Jeremy alluded to this, that at the end of the day, we're all judged on closed deals and our ability for our firms to deploy capital. So that's how I think about it. Um, it, it may be simplistic to some, but if I think about my career, that's the trajectory that, that I led. And, and I, I'm, I, I'd like to share that with younger talent because I think it's important. Let's keep on going, uh, Sheila and, and then Matt and Scott. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on this. So I think first and foremost, um, for someone who may be junior or starting out, don't misvalue the relationships on the other side at those levels, at your parallel levels. And the reason I say this is um, associates or VPs in banks, they're going to be the ones who are turning into MBs one day, right? Like they're running the list. Like there's a lot of influence you can have in really building out that network kind of up and down in terms of banking coverage. Uh, that's hugely valuable. Like I think about our firm itself, like it, it was one of the relationships that RBD um, manager had with a banker that really helped us get a look at a deal, not necessarily my kind of higher or senior level relationship. So make sure you put a lot of emphasis and think about that. I think the other common rookie mistake I see is that you don't know your portfolio or firm as well as you think you do. Um, I think it's really incumbent on you to understand your companies, know what they do. Don't just give me the, the paragraph that you can see on the website that everyone can see. 
really have an understanding of your companies and your strategy. And you'd be surprised how many people actually gloss over that versus taking the time to kind of dig in. That makes a difference. Yeah, I agree with all that's been said, Sheila. That was really well said. I think, you know, one of the mistakes we see a lot of folks make, you know, just in the market broadly, you know, coming into the chair, being new in the chair is, um, you know, that they don't find something early on that they think they can own at the firm one day or, or within the group, right? There's a lot of balls in the air at all times, as Luke described, right? And, you know, it's finding, you know, your niche within the structure of the broader group uh, and doing everything you can to kind of elevate that. I think that, you know, there's a misconception that, um, you know, if you don't need to kind of elevate or communicate what you're doing all the time. We tell our guys, hey, there's no such thing as, as over communication, right? And take the opportunity to immerse yourself in, you know, every part of the firm, sit in on portfolio company review meetings and weekly calls just to kind of understand the cadence of what's going on. So that, you know, when the phone rings inbound, you don't know what's on the other end or what the question's going to be, right? So um, you're what you're as well-versed as you can be to answer anything about our portfolio or fund strategy or, uh, you know, anything like that. Matt, do you think that's a function of people being so outwardly focused as opposed to like finding deals as opposed to spending an equal amount of time just really understanding being the historian of the firm as, you know, Jay Jester had said? Right. Yeah, that's, that's Jay's gospel, right? Be the firm yeah. historian. I think that um, it's a really big learning curve, right? Joining a new platform, particularly in a, in a younger role. A lot of times it's the first entree into private equity for a junior BD person. Um, you know, whether they have capital markets or principal investing experience prior um, you know, you're learning the culture of the firm and how the firm operates in the portfolio, but you're also learning what private equity really is, right? It's the, what do you say you do here? And so, um, you know, you're, you're, you're wearing a lot of hats and then also trying to, you know, do the day job. Um, and I think that people get, you know, can get a little bit tunnel vision, right? And say, I don't have time to worry about the portfolio. I need to, you know, start making banker calls or reaching out to my peers at other places versus taking a more you know, holistic view, you know, Sheila mentioned, you know, the, the analogy about PE being a marathon, you know, sourcing even, even more so, right? You can recognize accomplishments at every mile marker, but it's, it's really about the race, right? And, and keeping pace over time, um, you know, we're investors on a, on a clock, right? And, um, you know, I think people come in maybe a little bit less eager to, to take on as much as, as they're capable of and try and focus on one or two things, but, um, you know, taking the blinders off, you know, pays dividends, you know, long-term for sure. It's awesome. Scott, what would, I mean, Jack Dorsey, I mean, Scott, um, what, uh, what would you say is, you know, some of the early mistakes that you find kind of commonly made, you know, you've been at multiple firms that do have a solid BD function. And so what are kind of some of the early mistakes that people make? Yeah, well, I think Sheila and Matt hit it well, just in being really ingrained with how your investment committee thinks. I can, um, I can remember when I was managing a bigger team and I've had folks over the years, right, who are great at bringing in deals, but just had no opinion or informed opinion about whether it was interesting for our firm or not, right? The deal would go over the fence and it created a headache for me and for others at the firm because they just didn't have an opinion. And having an opinion, whether you're right or wrong, leads to learning opportunities. So if you bring in a deal, have an opinion. This is why I think it works. This is why it doesn't. Or I'm really on the fence. I value your opinion. Here are all the reasons why. So the biggest advice just, just in life when you join a private equity firm is to figure out ways to make others' lives and jobs easier. Right? If you're transitioning a deal, include the materials, include bullets, make it easy. Um, so that's, that's, that's a big piece of advice for folks coming in just with that um, internal mindset to, to make life easier for folks. Yeah, adding on to that, I'd encourage them to go that next step 
so let's say they have a manufacturer of fasteners is the, the materials they're reading. Take that next step to go back and look at the last five fastener deals you saw and provide context to your colleagues that the gross margins here are 10% higher than the last five you've seen of fastener companies serving the same end market. You know, provide that, that context that might not naturally already be in the materials that shows that you're thinking like an investor not like a deal finder. That's a great point. And then know somebody like Luke, right? Who does a lot in engineered products and maybe fasteners. And if it's not a fit for our firm, bankers really appreciate, especially lower middle market bankers appreciate uh, referring uh, to other private equity funds. And so always have two or three folks in mind that you can refer to a deal if it's appropriate. Yeah, just building on what Scott said, I mean, I would 100% agree with that. I mean, one, wh whether a big is kind of, whether a deal is too big, whether it's too small, it may not be the right fit for you, but have your list of, hey, these are small private equity firms I really like that I would refer you to if you're interested in finding a buyer for this. I think the other part of what Scott said of making people's jobs easier is, is not just internally, but also externally. If you're talking to bankers, if you're talking to intermediaries, make their job easy. Have that one page already that they can just forward on to their industry teams. Don't make them do any of the work, like do it all for them and you will see much, much more traction that way. That's awesome. Let's, uh, let's kind of change up, change it up a little bit and as and answer some of the Q and A right now, as opposed to waiting to the end. Um, <clears throat> so first question is what ways have you changed your strategy during the days of virtual networking? I think this is particularly important for people who are new to firms, new to the function. I don't know anybody. I met them during the interviews or whatever. Like, and that's just internal, but also externally, how can new BD professionals effectively network in this environment and form quality relationships? Um, who would like to take that one first? Yeah. Um, so during COVID, man, uh, I've just been spending a lot more time with other private equity firms than I probably have in the past. And so uh, I think, I think Sheila mentioned it. don't discount spending time with folks who are in your same vintage or senior folks. Uh, but, but I'm encouraged folks to do that. Yeah. Just building on that. I mean, look, the reality of today's world is particularly in a COVID environment is that processes are narrower. It's much more targeted outreach if, you know, someone's interested in selling the company. So you want to be on that short list or you want to be top of mind. I'd say the other thing that um, we've really tried to push on this year and, it should be a goal always in terms of reaching out with the purpose. But I think in today's day and age, where someone has to get on a Zoom after the 18th Zoom of the day, after, you know, they're already fatigued in general, have a reason you're reaching out. No one wants to just kind of catch up over Zoom. Like that's a little bit harder to do. So be respectful of the other person's time. Be respectful. Just have a reason to reach out and have purpose and be focused on that. I think more than ever in today's environment, just because there's so many pressures that everyone is dealing with, whether it's professional or personal, I think that's almost more impactful. Jeremy, what are your thoughts on, or what advice have you given to the team? Um, and you have a larger BD team. So for people who are just starting, you know, how are they find, navigating their ways internally? What kind of specific stuff are you guys doing that is working such as, you know, every Tuesday we have lunch together, even, even things like that to, to build meaningful relationships within the firm. Yeah, we when the lockdown first happened, we went to daily uh, huddles at uh, 8.30 Eastern, 5, 5.30 out here uh, to try to replace that 
time in the morning where the team would normally be having their cup of coffee and their chit chat in the office and trying to keep the, the team together. Eventually they, they spoke up and said it was a little much and we cut back to two days a week. Um, but we're, we have a lot of uh, special guests, uh, investment committee members from different funds, partners from different funds, you name it, uh, to get to know them personally and uh, with a little icebreaker at the beginning of each session. And arguably, I think our, our team might um, know the firm better than ever as a result. And so just trying to keep the, the team stitched together and, and enhance that uh, routine of connectivity. Nice. Luke, anything on that? on, you know, how to build effective relationships now and things that you've been, you know, nine months into this that you've seen work for you and the team? Sure. Um, I know I'm a little out on the spectrum, but I haven't changed my strategy. So I am still traveling and still getting out there on the road. I'm just more effective when I'm in person with people. Um, with that said, I obviously am doing a lot of Zooms, but the one piece of advice I would, I would encourage is find variability that works for you. If you're doing, you know, 10, 15 Zooms a day, the burnout is going to happen that much quicker or, or rapidly. Um, so find ways to uh, engage in different formats. And I do think there is a way to do it in person in a safe environment where you're adhering to guidelines and protocols. I know some firms have strict policies around that, but you know, we, we all, for the most part, live uh, in and around different uh, suburb, you know, urban areas. And so even if it's going to grab a cup of coffee outdoors at a Starbucks, at least it's variability and, and it breaks up the monotony of the Zoom. So that, that's, what I've, that's what we've done and I continue to do. And um, certainly from an internal standpoint, because we're not as connected uh, physically as, as colleagues. We, we have done the happy hours over Zoom. And, um, you know, I, I am going into the office, into the city once in a while. You know, I try to do once a week and try to encourage others to join me so we can at least have some connectivity face-to-face. -face. So my, my, the word that I keep focusing on is variability. And, and for me, I just I need that because otherwise I feel like it's Groundhog Day every day of the week. So... Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it goes back to the, the money ball theme, right? If you do the same thing as everybody else, you're going to get the same results. Don't be afraid to be different, mix it up and uh, be memorable. I, th I think what, just one thing to add there quickly, um, you know, kind of building on what Scott said about, you know, spending more time with, you know, peers at, you know, similar funds. Um, you know, I think there's an important delineation, particularly virtually between relationships that are newer that you're trying to build and then, you know, relationships that are kind of more in maintenance mode, right? Where, hey, we, we know this firm top to bottom, right? Those are easier to get a little bit deeper in terms of depth of discussion. Virtually, it's really hard to make new relationships, you know, behind a, behind a camera. And, you know, I've, I've certainly found that our firms use this time, you know, more on the maintenance side to go deeper, certainly more depth with, um, you know, with higher quality sources and, you know, peers at other funds and platforms. Um, well, on a follow-up to Luke's point, uh, a question came up, you know, Luke, are you finding that people are taking meetings in for current relationship, relationships and new ones? Uh, yes. I've, um, since COVID began, I've probably been to eight or nine different cities and um, I haven't had any pushback. Okay. And it's a mix of intermediaries, private equity firms, 
Uh, you just have to be thoughtful around how you do it. And you certainly have to ask the question, you know, you don't never want to assume anything, but if you approach it, say, Hey, you know, I was thinking of coming to town. Would you, would you be open to meeting me for an outdoor coffee or an outdoor lunch? And, you know, if you can, you know, cobble together four or five of those types of meetings, um, it might be worthwhile doing uh, for a day trip or even an overnight trip. So um, look, again, I, I know people have to adhere to certain policies and, you know, you, you have to do what's what's in the best interest of the firm and, and yourself in terms of your, your, your um, risk tolerance. But um, you can do it if, 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 if you have the, um, the ability to and you can do it in a safe, safe way. Uh, let's, let's talk about another question, which is, you know, direct sourcing advice and tips, um, you know, versus banking. And this is, let's kind of go around there and just kind of, um, you know, Scott, I'd love to hear your thoughts around direct sourcing, um, you know, particularly in the past nine months, what that means to you as the firm. And then we just kind of keep on going around the table on that one. Yeah, sure. So uh, there are proprietary deals still out there. Um, you know, look for our firm. We're buying, we're buying good businesses. We're buying really good businesses, and so it's it's a needle in a haystack. And I would drive myself crazy and probably out of this industry if I was only searching for proprietary deals. And so the holy grail, really, for us is like Sheila mentioned earlier. In this market, processes for good assets are getting smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter and moving faster. And so. We want to be ahead of those six, nine, 12 months before a business comes to market, potentially even before, right? And so how do you get on that list of five folks or 10 folks for an early look? We're doing GLG calls early. We're finding industry execs that can help. We're spending time with the private equity partners who did that deal. If it's a private equity backed business, we're trying to find banks who pitched that deal and maybe who didn't win if it's a bit closer. We're talking to incumbent lenders. We're really triangulating every single way we can to make sure we're in the best position to run hard and to run fast and be as credible as possible um, when it's time to go. And, and if we can preempt the process, even by a few weeks or a month, that, that to us is direct sourcing in this environment for the types of deals that we're chasing uh, well north of 100 million. So that's what I'd say. Scott, that's kind of making me think about what Jeremy mentioned in a previous panel, which was really along the lines of, um, it's about a game of angles and all that stuff cumulatively, there's no silver bullet. And Jeremy, we'll load your, your, your thoughts on this and we can dive into the next topic. Yeah, on, on direct sourcing is in certain ways is easier than ever as entrepreneurs are much more available as they're not flying as much either. Um, you know, clearly direct sourcing is far more voluminous for add-ons than for platforms. Um, but I, I think the advice is to bring value. The idea of sending out a bunch of email blasts saying we want to buy your company is, I suppose, is a strategy. But to me, it's just junk mail. It's just noise. Uh, it's very different if you're bringing uh, some kind of value to them and you're a thought leader in the space, you're articulating uh, the experience or how you're going to add value to them is a very different conversation than sending an email saying we want to buy your company. You're not adding a lot of value uh, to that dialogue. Yeah, just building on that, um, I think like Scott said, finding a proprietary deal is absolutely like finding a needle in a haystack. So one thought is to be selective. You're not gonna be able to run hard at every deal. You're not gonna be able to be in those narrow processes for every deal. Know what you're looking for, be selective and have an angle, have an angle, have an angle. If you can bring an operator, if you know their end clients you can bring them sales and business development. If you have a point of view around operations, really today, 
having an angle is the key to private equity, because if you don't, it's just a race to the bottom in terms of returns, right? Everyone can bring money, everyone can bring financing. It's really about how are you going to supercharge and really supercharge the business and help them grow even faster or quicker. Um, I'd say the other part of our proprietary deals is, again, it's a marathon. I mean, I always say one of our very successful deals in Fund One was an entrepreneur we knew for 10 years. We had talked to him 10 years on and off about the business, we, you know, how they were doing. Be helpful when you can. We helped him with a bunch of introductions. We kept in touch with him. But these things aren't going to happen overnight. So again, take that long road. Always take the meeting. Even if a company is too small now, if it's a space you really like, if it's an entrepreneur you think is really great, keep in touch. Because you know what? Two, three years from now, that company is going to be your size. Or the first time they think about doing an acquisition where they need financing for, you're going to be on the list. So again, um, always think about how you can be helpful to others and building that relationship over time. There's a nugget in there I don't want people to miss. Sheila said about bringing them business or customers. Uh, my colleague, Matt Deli had uh, completed a game-changing proprietary add-on last year. And he had the add-on doing business with our portfolio company for probably a year or more. And they got to know each other as they did business together. Uh, very few people are bringing customers to potential targets. And uh, that, you know, that builds a lot of trust and a lot of goodwill. I think that brings up a larger theme that we've seen on a lot of these events, which is we're in the new era of it being a two-way street. And this goes into what we, you know, think about in terms of content. We're like what, you know, Clearlight does a great job of adding value to the market with content, for example, but making it a two-way street as opposed to just like, what do you have for me today? Um, and Sheila, like your, your point is really interesting. I think it's so difficult at the beginning stages of a career of just to realize it's a marathon and, and just taking that long view. And then to the other point on specialization, like that can be scary because what if I specialize in the wrong thing? But it's, it, then that goes to the point of just like, okay, we'll get feedback from the team. Should I be specializing in this? Um, but let's kind of, let's keep, let's go through some more of these questions. Uh, one is, can we discuss CRMs? All right. Good topic. We're evaluating different, different options, Salesforce, deal cloud, et cetera. Let's do maybe a flash, uh, answer around the table. And if you have maybe a couple of points on some key lessons that you got, that's valuable here. Let's, let's do that. Um, Sheila. Okay, first, um, I'd say, first of all, CRM doesn't matter because it, it goes to the point of garbage in, garbage out. Unless you're going to use a CRM, unless you're actually going to be organized about it, unless you're going to get buy-in from the entire firm to log their things, it doesn't really matter because it's just going to be garbage. So that should be the first kind of lens you look at a CRM with is what's going to be most user-friendly? How am I going to get the rest of the firm to buy in on this? Um, and then as for a specific platform, I mean, we use DealCloud. Um, we think it's great. Uh, I think they've really started to differentiate themselves as, you know, being specialized in private equity and it's worked well for us. Awesome. Matt? Yeah, we use Salesforce purely as a, a CRM tool. We don't log any deals in there. Um, it's, it's solely for contacts, not a lot of power users at the firm, um, you know, which, which is fine. Um, we have a proprietary um, deal tracking database that one of our partners built and created over time. He came from Audax Group. Uh, and worked for Jay and, and, and brought some of that with him to Inverness. Um, and it's just much more user-friendly, a lot more customizable um, than trying to load everything over into a platform. And I, I would agree with Sheila, right? If, if, if you know how to use it, great, but it doesn't need to have all the bells and whistles um, to be able to do this job successfully. 
Awesome. Uh, before that question, Matt, how many golf courses have you played on? Look at your back. <laughs> so, more, more than I would uh, care to admit. It's, it's the best part of the job. <laughs> Scott, CRM. Yeah, nothing much to add. We use DealCloud. I've used Salesforce in the past. DealCloud's been great. Um, OneNote has been a game changer over the last couple of years for me personally, especially in COVID, just being able to digitally organize thoughts and ideas uh, and to be able to search those outside of a, a physical notebook has been tremendous. Um, so I'd give my deal cloud endorsement. Cool. Well, actually, uh, Jeremy and uh, Luke, let's, let's change it a little bit and say one uh, technology that has helped make your life easier. Zoom might be a detractor, but one thing such as like, you know, x.ai, which can automate your scheduling or, you know, uh, another one that we mentioned before the call is crisp.ai, K-R-I-S-P, because all the background noise with construction, dogs, kids, whatever, um, it blurs it out. So what are some things for you guys that have worked yeah, I love within DealCloud, I specifically love the voice to text feature in the app so that if I'm sprinting between meetings or whatever it needs to be, that I can get a few quick sentences logged in there. Uh, if need be, I could always go back and add more color, but I want to make sure that I can quickly stay on top of it. Once you get too far behind, you're never going to catch up. So you, you just got to plug away. Yeah, and I would with DealCloud as well. I've had experience with a lot of different CRMs. Uh, the one thing I would say about CRMs in general is I, I actually don't think you should try and have the entire organization um, adopt it uh, to the point earlier that Sheila made about garbage in. If you just keep it captive to the biz dev group or team, um, I think it's more manageable. We use it for both contacts and for all of our deal. Um, uh, information, but the piece of technology that we've adopted uh, at Arcline, and I personally think it's a game changer for our roles, especially in a pre-COVID environment and hopefully a post-COVID environment where people are back out on the road is Slack. Uh, Slack is the instant messaging um, technology. And, and the beautiful thing about it is, you know, they have a great mobile app so you can upload teasers and Sims very, very easily and in real time into channels on Slack and the entire organization has access to it and can read, um, you know, updated materials and or uh, notes on certain deals. So it's a, it's a lot more efficient than doing it through email. So I'm, I'm a huge Slack uh, supporter. Does, does anyone here use something like Trello Monday to organize your, your projects? Sheila, you do? Yeah, we're big fans of Monday. Um, you know, my BD team and I use them. Uh, we think it's great. It's a good way to keep track of things, just to kind of remember everything that things people are working on. Yeah. Our deal teams tend to use them a lot too, just to, you know, do a lot of the blocking and tackling. So it's it's been a very good tool for us. Awesome. Let's go to interviews. Um, Scott and, and Matt, for the people that you have interviewed, <clears throat> what are you looking for? And what what do you think is co are common mistakes either on resumes or in how people are, are articulating their story? And then Aaron, this is great content for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'll start there. Scott, you want to go ahead? No, no, go for it. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, as, as we've grown our team, um, you know, you're looking for someone, you know, regardless of, of background, you know, we want the best athlete, right? Someone's going to jump in with two feet. Um, you know, has a passion to understand why we do and, and what we do and how we do it. 
Um, you know, we always say, you know, private equity is a great job to tell your, your spouse's parents that you have, but until you really do it, you have no idea what, what it's all about. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean someone has to come, you know, with a perfect resume, but it's, it's an eagerness to learn, um, you know, how is that individual going to free up my time to be more strategic and add more value to my partners? Um, you know, and hopefully they continue to grow with the trajectory of the firm. Um, you know, I think the worst mistake that, that we run into hiring on both sides of the house are people that, you know, kind of oversell their capabilities. Uh, it's, it's a really small world in the middle market. Um, and it's really easy to call and, and reference check anybody, right? And um, people, people forget that sometimes when they're, when they're in sales mode. Scott? Yeah, I think, I think Matt hit it well. I would rather have um, a great all-around athlete, someone who's empathetic, someone who cares about others, someone who's just a joy to be around than someone who could build a three-statement model from scratch in, in four hours. Helpful, sure, but it's not going to lead to success in this job long-term. So it's a lot of the softer skills you're looking for. That's why it's really hard to find good candidates for these roles. And that's why it's frustrating that folks are looking for roles because it can take forever, right? I think I was talking to the folks at Aurora for, gosh, over, over a year. And I'd been doing this for nine or 10 years in the industry. And so it's a lot of the softer stuff. The finance stuff will be the cornerstone, but I, I wouldn't get too hung up on that. I would focus on, um, on just being well thought of at your firm, well thought of in your industry, and it'll pay dividends. Yeah, I, we, we, you can teach the job. You can teach the day job to anybody, right? It, it's, you know, it's the person that's memorable, right? It's the person that you're going to trust to carry your, your business card around, right? With the firm name on it, right? Without you kind of over their shoulder yeah. all the time, right? And so it, it's a lot of the soft skills like Scott alluded to that, that really differentiate. The way I'd phrase it is um, you also want someone who can slide up and slide down. So like everyone's saying, we're an ambassador for the firm. Like we are usually the first people that people will associate with when they think of the private equity firm because we're the ones who are out there. We're meeting everyone. So you really want to make sure you have that person who has the right presence, who you trust um, to really be the ambassador for the firm. And so that's kind of what I call sliding up, right? Being able to have that presence with, you know, very senior meetings, um, that outward facing presence. There's one part of... Uh, BD that I don't think you should gloss over and that a lot of the job is admin oriented. And so that's where I also say slide down. Look, there is a lot of tracking of deals, um, you know, going through your cadence of, you know, banker calls and just a lot of work in terms of organizing, collating. Um, that's nothing to be sneezed at because that is part of the job. That is part of what will make a BD organization successful is if you can really uh, keep tabs of all of that. And so you want someone who's willing to do that as well. I mean, we had someone at one point on our team who didn't want to do any of that. And it just wasn't going to be a good fit because that is part of the job. Aaron, what are your thoughts? I mean, you have a lot of thoughts. We can do a whole nother, we will do a whole nother webinar on this. <laughs> but what are, your, uh, what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, everyone's kind of touched on it already, but, you know, typically I would say we see and have seen, there's a couple of consistent themes when firms seem to be building out teams, like maybe they already have a head of and they're looking for, um, you know, someone to augment coverage or even maybe a junior, a more junior resource to really help with like the admin side. But generally speaking, it's, we see kind of three things. And one is the commercial instinct. I mean, I think you can, you are the brand of the firm. You're very much so an extension, I think, of the investment team or should be, or should be moving towards that. 
Um, but the reality is if you don't have the fire in the belly to, you know, be on the road and when it's safe and okay, but I mean, that is what is going to separate. That's how you build those relationships and so on and so forth. Like, I don't think that you can be, hang back. Like you have to have that motor, um, especially starting out and you have to be able to demonstrate that. Um, and that can be a really tough transition for someone if you're not in and around the private equity space or even financial services. Um, that can be a really tough transition. I mean, you don't know what it's like to travel three to four days a week, 50 weeks of the year until you do it. And there are people that transition out of business development in part because of that and have done, you know, when they were earlier in their career. Um, the other piece of it, is, or one other piece would be the investment acumen. And I would say that has definitely changed over the course of the last even five to seven years. Um, I think, as firms build out their business development teams, the ability to be credible almost immediately, if you're, especially if you're externally facing, is really important. Um, and it speaks to everything that has already been said, but to build relationships with investment bankers that may be 10, 15 years your senior and you want that and you want them to open up and show you certain angles or fireside chat. I mean, you have to be able to talk about what is going on, not only in your portfolio company, but what is, you know, kind of what makes a deal a good deal and be able to go really, really deep, I think, um, pretty quickly. You don't need to be a principal investor, but more and more, our clients are definitely looking for individuals with capital markets experience, whether it's banking or otherwise. Um, and then Sheila, building on what you said, I, I mean, the kind of high humility, low ego, um, it, I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, you're in the weeds. I mean, I have a CRM. I'm in a CRM all the time. I'm constantly doing that. I think many people are, you know, throughout their jobs, but it is, you know, you're only as good as your data. And if you're not going to be committed to doing some of that heavy lifting, I think you're probably putting yourself at a disadvantage because I'm not sure how you can get quality if your data isn't good to begin with. And it does take a lot of time. I think that's candidly why a lot of firms have started to build out their teams and augment, you know, a, either a more senior person um, that is already externally facing or, you know, just really kind of building out a team, even if it's at a peer level to because the follow-up is incredible i think you know you can go on a city blitz but then you know you you probably need to spend a day or two just following up with people and that's admin work for the most part one more thing to add there uh, i think that was really well said is you know even as recently as five or six years ago i think people would view bd as a way to get in the door at private equity right in a private equity firm but still a path to flip over to the deal side um, you know, I think as the importance of the function grows across the asset class, there's, it's just judging by the people on the call, there's a path to partnership in the BD chair, right? And, um, you know, I think we're getting more and more candidates across the board that view it as what they really want to do in private equity, rather than using it as a stepping stone to say, well, you know, hey, I'm sick of banking, let me go try BD for a couple of years, but then I have to flip the door, I can flip to the deal side. Um, you know, I certainly think that that, you know, that trend is improving as people realize that, Hey, it's, it's a pretty great spot to be, and I can add a lot of value, not you know, buried in the numbers all the time. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the function has grown immensely. I mean, there's no um, arguing around that. We track it pretty um, meaningfully at various levels. But um, I was just looking at a past comp study that we ran in 2016. I think we had 100 
individuals. Um, this past, you know, we, this past comp study, it was, we mailed it out to 600. So um, that's pretty meaningful and probably not capturing everyone. And that's just dedicated to private equity, not even on like the debt origination side. I mean, it's very, very narrow. So, um, and, you know, candidly, I think it's, you know, for many, many of the folks that are on screen today, the reason that it's a career path is because people ahead of you have really demonstrated an ability to add value and impact at the firm and create leverage, which the firm needs as it grow, as any private equity firm needs. Um, and that's why other functions are being added to capital markets, investor relations, talent. We're seeing kind of that maturation cycle more broadly. Let's talk about, I mean, that's a good segue in kind of like the future of BD in the next, you know, cycle of funds. Do, do we see, you know, Luke, how, how are you thinking about, you know, not just your team, but also maybe trends that you have seen in terms of how the size and shape of BD functions is changing, the BD teams are changing. And uh, Jeremy, it'd be good to hear your thoughts and actually go back to Aaron to see what you're seeing on your client side. And Scott, I know you have a hard stop in five, in five minutes. Um, so if you want to jump in on any of this beforehand, let me know. And if anyone else has a hard stop, feel free coming up on an hour. And to the attendees, once again, please drop in your questions in here. And we're going to go for another uh, 20 to 30 minutes for, for Q&A. But Luke, over to you. Sure. Um, well, Sheila mentioned this earlier, but the, this notion that the market has moved more to a narrow casting as opposed to a broadcasting for deal flow is, is really important. And so, you know, we, at least at Arcline, and I think you know, many, many firms are increasingly looking at it this way. If you're learning about the deal when you get the teaser, you're probably not going to win. Um, and so this notion that you have to do a lot of advanced work, you need a prospect, and that's why you've seen the advent of more and more direct relationship building with other private equity firms, which is something that I do and, and many of you are doing as well, is so critical because you need to understand what is going to be coming to market, whether it's six months, nine months, 12 months, 24 months for that matter, down the road, because then you can develop those angles, as we've talked about, you can develop your investment thesis that we've discussed, and um, you want you you ultimately will ensure that you're seeing that deal, and you've got some differentiated approach to potentially winning that deal, as opposed to just reviewing the SIP and the teaser for the first time. So that's a really important um, evolution, I think, of our marketplace as the asset class has become more mature, and for seasoned BD professionals, I think that's where we're all focused. Is, is really trying to develop those angles and make sure that we're seeing the right deals and that we have angles around the right deals. Um, I think that answered your question, but- um, More along the question of like, you know, when you other larger firms have like a very large structure of the BD team. Do we see this as the future structure of the BD team called a $500 million fund is one person, but a whole bunch of outsourced services and damn good technology, as opposed to that second or third person. Um, so I'm kind of curious in here what you think the future is from a structural perspective. And, and maybe Jeremy, if you want to jump in on here or, or, or Aaron. Yeah, I, I mean, I can tell you just like quickly, um, you know, and I don't think that there's a crystal ball. I think one of the challenges is that every firm really looks at deal flow differently um, and it will affect the shape of not only their team or, you know, even 
members of their team, but also the types of individuals they want to recruit into those positions. Um, you know, if you are running a buy and build strategy in the lower mid market, I mean, you need to have a machine, uh, literally, to be able to source that much deal flow um, to execute, you know, six add-ons for every platform one person is probably not enough. And if you don't have any sort of like outsource services, you probably do need a junior team of individuals just focused on add-ons, I would think. Um, but, you know, for other firms where, you know, you're deploying, especially as you go up market, deploying, you know, one deal a year, really kind of investing in one deal a year, it may not make sense to have four associates and one business development professional. So I do think, the way in which the firm deploys capital and also where they invest, like in the, in the um, kind of from a size perspective, really does often determine, I think, how they best staff. Um, and I think, Jeremy, you're nodding your head. I think, you know, you have a lot of different fund strategies now coming into market too, where you would have a traditional middle market private equity firm. Now they've started a small cap fund. I mean, that's a pretty broad market to cover from an intermediary perspective. That's not even including direct outreach. Um, and you, you need to probably augment your business development team for that. Um, and then direct outreach versus intermediary coverage. That's like a whole different ball game. So I think a lot, uh, I will say for as many business development searches we run, every search is different in some way because of those lenses. And um, it really does affect, I think, the candidate pool and what will make a candidate successful, um, like their background, where they come from, what their um, areas of, yeah. uh, I would say, expertise are. Um, well, Vic, you're touching on point here in terms of like add-ons. And this brings up a good question, which is, how, to what extent do you look at buy-side relationships for platforms and or add-ons, is it worth it? And if so, under what circumstances and under what circumstances are it not worth it to use those outsourced uh, functions? Matt? Yeah, we, we, we use a lot of buy-side firms um, at Inverness and have for a while, uh, you know, usually three or four on retainer with, with a number of different mandates, right? I think, you know, when we were talking about prior, pro, pro, bleh, proprietary sourcing a little bit ago, um, you know, I, I think, you know, proprietary deals still exist in principle. That doesn't necessarily mean in 2020, 2021, you're paying proprietary prices in terms of what they, what they used to be, but it's access, right? Um, you know, you may, you may not see, you know, you may not see it without that introduction and they really don't do much more than identify and position you to go in there. Um, you know, they're not helping you close the deal that's on the team, right? And you, you pay for it, sure. Um, you know, we find that uh, they are by far the best source for our add-ons. We build smaller portfolios at Inverness, but do a lot of M&A once we own the platform, a lot like what Luke's doing at Arcline, just uh, significantly less scale. And you know, we're averaging three add-ons per platform, right? And we have a smaller team. That takes a lot of work to, to get that done. I'd say the direct channel for us represents about 20% of our annual volume every year, but it's 85% of our closed deals. So sure. it's, a very, it's a very valuable channel that you're worth, that you know, you're willing to pay for it, right? In addition to having a dedicated team just for access. These are yeah. small companies that fly below the radar of even the smallest, you know, reputable middle market banks. And it's, it's certainly worth its weight in spade. I think, you know, you know, Harvey, you know, everyone on the you know, phone should be familiar with Harvey and company and some of the bigger groups. They did 90 deals last year, I think, and three of them were platforms, right? So that category as a whole is becoming increasingly more commoditized in terms of finding new platform opportunities. And 
like I said, you're not paying what you used to pay for a proprietary deal, but it's still, you know, an angle and an edge because you're at the table without someone else. So we view it as very valuable and always trying to find ways for our buy side partners to become more strategic and value add, you know, to us, you know, during our relationship. Let's do one more answer on this buy side topic. If somebody wants to take it. Oh, um, I was just going to say, look, we, we have utilized buy side advisors. Um, the strategy we're deploying at our client is we have both a specialist go-to-market strategy and a generalist go-to-market strategy in business. So you know, most, a lot of private equity firms have verticalized at the deal uh, execution side. We've actually flipped the coin and we verticalized at the BD uh, level. And so last year we consummated 20 and uh, well over 20 of those were proprietary ones to our portfolio companies where our specialists um, who cover different sectors for us were focused on identifying and prospecting those names and ultimately cultivating them to a point where we could transact. But with all of that said, we are still utilizing the buy side of firms that uh, Matt has mentioned. Um, cool. So let's go into a question about MBAs. Um, for this function, you know, Aaron, can you give a flash statistic if you might have one off the top of your head in terms of for associate or VP, for example, what percentage do have MBAs? And then let's kind of bring it out to the whole group here, Sheila, starting with you, of how do you view that as being as a qualification to be able to be an excellent BD professional? But Aaron, starting with you. My guess is less than 25% have MBAs at that okay. level, VP, like senior associate, associate VP. And, and above that, do you think it's more remnants of past uh, tracks that they were down? Or do you think that the future of it is going to stay around 25% or so? You know, I think, well, in part, I think it's biased towards also the lower mid-market, which doesn't typically run like a two-and-two process on the private equity side. So they're more open, too, to non-MBA um, candidates. Not, I, I've never had a business development search where a client said this person has to have like an advanced degree. But I do think as you get to the larger funds, it is more traditional to see further education beyond undergrad. Um, yeah. I would think that, you know, it probably, it, it's hard, I think, for some individuals to make that decision when they, when the market keeps going up and to walk away for two years, especially if you're in a situation where the firm is very supportive of you to continue without it. Um, you know, I, we've definitely seen more individuals to opt out of taking that step away. Yeah. We'll see if, the market changes and I think that dynamic will shift, but. Um, so I have an MBA. I went to undergraduate business school. So I'm the first person um, who can very easily say you don't need an MBA for this job or any job. <laughs> I mean, an MBA is great and there's a lot of um, good things that come from it. And I certainly enjoyed my experiences, but you absolutely do not need one in terms of dictating success at BD. Um, everything that we've talked about on this panel, whether it's uh, having a network, you know, your willingness for commercial instincts, your willingness to put in the work, um, you know, knowing the businesses, knowing the materials, you don't need an MBA to do that. You can do that on your own. So an MBA is a nice to have. I think it broadens your network very quickly and maybe you get more sophistication on certain things, but it's absolutely not in my mind a need to have. Aaron hit the nail on the head, I think. I mean, I have a communications degree, right? I, I, Same here. Furthest, Rhetoric. Furthest thing from an MBA on the planet, barely in, barely out. And, uh, you know, Aaron hit the nail on the head. So, you know, you, you lose two years of reps, right, to go back to school, to come back to a job that people that are going to school want, right, um, whether you're on the deal side or, or, or 
with the BD side. I think it's, you know, there's no substitute for live, you know, live reps. And it's great from a networking perspective and all of that stuff, right? But, you know, certainly not necessary, um, you know, to, to be successful. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I do think the market has changed, right? So I have an MBA and I'll tell you, I would not be in private equity if it wasn't for my MBA, but that was 20 years ago. Um, so I think today it's, it's not, uh, you, you don't necessarily need to have it. I will always advocate for further education. I think it's only helpful and beneficial to people, but um, I, I agree with everything that's been said in this environment where it's, the role is very prolific um, it is the reps, it is the network, it's the relationships that you have that likely are going to trump uh, needing to have an MBA. Can we talk a little bit about creative strategies or tactics that you have seen applicants do when they reach out to you? Or Aaron, that you've seen when they're reaching out, for example, like bringing out the phone and you're already connected to Luke on LinkedIn and then you send him a video and it's super polished or whatever, like just more creative tactics. And I'm not advocating that everyone does that all 106 people, <laughs> Luke, get ready. Um, but what are some tactics that you have seen that are creative and interesting that sets people apart um, when, they're, when they're applying for BD jobs? Um, thinking about the, the other party more than themselves. So maybe they've done something proactive and they've seen that our portfolio company logically, which is a, an active acquirer of MSPs, and they dug into their network and offered an introduction to one, even if it doesn't go anywhere whatsoever, that's completely different than so many other people who are just kind of asking for your time and asking for your time. Um, a lot of simple things, making themselves available at your convenience, whether that's nights, weekends, whatever. It amazes me how often people reach out and I say, you know, I'm available between seven and 10 a.m. On, on Saturday morning. And they say, sorry, that's, <laughs> I'm teeing off at seven. <laughs> okay. Have a good round. There we go. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting, but I think it's, it's no different than deal sourcing. Find an angle, find an edge, find a re- common relationship, uh, find someone, my, my contacts in LinkedIn are open, find someone we have in common that's willing to put their name on the line and say, you need to talk to this candidate because she's awesome. And we used to work together. That stands out. Then all the, the incessant, you know, pings you get from, from people that you, you just can't talk to everybody that, that sends you a blind email with, with no connection, uh, point of connectivity or value add. Aaron, what are some things that you've seen that have been creative on the outreach front? I don't know. I mean, I keep thinking about somebody like sending a video or something. No one has done that. And please don't. I would not recommend that. Um, I, I think we would make kind of meaningful notes in our CRM system. Um, you know, I do think getting like being informed about the role and really what it is and what it takes to be successful and maybe having had spoken with uh, Jeremy, if you can um, speak at 7 a.m. on a Saturday um, or others, I, I will say, I think that that goes a long way where, you know, I've definitely spoken with, you know, candidates that or individuals looking to get into business development and it's clear they don't really, they want to get into business development, but they really don't know like the granularity around like what the role is. So I don't necessarily think you need to be creative, but I do think you need to be informed. And I think speaking with others in this role today and finding those networks will get you much further than, um, you know, just kind of blind, blind emailing a recruiter um, without having done your diligence beforehand. 
Yeah, I mean, just to build on that, it would actually probably raise my eyebrows a little bit more if someone sent me some video or some flashy thing. I'm like, what are they trying to cover or hide? Um, maybe I'm a little bit old school, but to me, BD at the heart of it is about building authentic relationships. And if someone can't authentically reach out to you for a conversation or for whatever it is, and you can be creative, like Jeremy was saying, like, you know, have a point of connectivity, have some interaction, you know, have some overlap, do your research, do your homework. But to me, that strikes me as way more authentic and interesting than someone who can put together a 20 second clip. That, that's a little weird to me. <laughs> um, well, cool. Let's keep on going. Uh, let's keep on going through some of these questions. Uh, so we've thoroughly decided that MBAs are uh, not needed in, in this. Um, okay, let's go to one question is RE marketing. Uh, what are your firms doing in terms of strategies and tactics? Just kind of high level differentiation and maybe new things that have come about in the past year. You're leading the way, Jordan, <laughs> right? You should answer that. Well, I, well, maybe, maybe let me just kind of throw this out there to help get the gears going. Um, for example, Mark at Clearlight is doing a great job with blogging. Trivest is doing a great job. They send, they have three different emails that they can send per week. If you subscribe to them, they have a chat feature on their website that people are actually engaging with. Actually, next week we have a vlog, a vlog coming out with Ryan Parker, who did all that, all those ideas and really led that rebranding and efforts. Um, Parker Gale has their podcast, which is probably getting 10,000 downloads, but everyone seems to be doing, um, I haven't seen people who are bringing it all together. And so maybe let's just kind of go down that line. They're like, what do you see are some interesting new differentiated marketing tactics that you see in the market or that you guys are doing? Yeah, we're, we're certainly not. We're certainly not at the forefront of innovation on this front. Um, you know, we've made an effort over the last little while to go a little bit more vertical uh, in terms of, you know, just investment theses. And, um, you know, we've typically been more opportunistically generalist, right? Just because that gives us the right to, to change our mind. Um, so we do a lot of targeted outreach that, you know, the, the broader market wouldn't see that we think is really well done. Um, and, and it certainly has yield. Um, but, you know, there are some firms out there, you know, on their website, you know, they have a tab say, if you send us a deal, we'll buy your Mercedes. Right. It's, you know, and that's, I think everyone knows who we're talking about. And, um, it's funny, it works and they do it. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, we're, we're probably not the best one to answer, answer that. Um, well, actually, let's, let's shift over at kind of the next 10 to 15 minutes to talk about um, comp, ROI, and how people at different seniority levels should be thinking about that inside of the firm, how to prove their value, for example. And, you know, Aaron, maybe we could start off with you as the expert on this. Um, you know, at Associate for general fund sizes, I'll, you know, you have your comp side, but can you just kind of give some high level stats on maybe some big trends that you have seen and also some specifics around different levels? Um, and we'll just kick it off there. Sure. Um, so I would say general trends, I think more than anything else, we're seeing a growth in compensation and I, in the business development function. And we definitely see a pretty meaningful trend for those that have 10 plus years of business development experience where the firms have clearly, sponsors have clearly invested in those individuals um, and recognize the value that they bring. Um, you know, it's not par typically with an investment professional at the same level. Um, I would say it rarely is. It can be, but it's rarely the case. And many times those 
um, senior business development professionals also have um, incentive comp beyond cash and beyond a base and a bonus. They would have carry, co-invest, you know, or other ancillary benefits that, um, you know, an investment professional would have at their same level. So it's clear that I think generally firms are investing in this function um, at the junior level or at the associate level. Um, I think a lot depends on the location and the size of the fund and also where the individual comes from. I mean, out of undergrad, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but my sense is they're not paying, you know, Goldman Sachs investment banking salaries. Um, but the reality is like, if you're going to be in this role for a long, for a long term, um, you know, a couple of things like really matter. A lot of folks are kind of angling for carry and carry is definitely a, an incentive and a, a way for firms, I think, to align business development professionals with the investment team, um, as well as other places within the firm, whether it's investor relations or otherwise. Um, I think, you know, carry is really meaningful if you are going to stay at that firm. And I think that is a really important thing for everyone to know, especially getting into business development, that, you know, it, you really have to make the investment in the firm in order for that to pay off in the long term. But I will say, I mean, I think there is a clear trend that it's growing. Um, I think there's also a bit of a flattening at the same time. I mean, as more individuals come into the space and there is a broader section of senior associates, VPs and say directors or principals, um, you know, there, there's a real market, I think, that has been kind of started, that has started to be outlined. And I think there's guardrails kind of put up. Um, I, it is still typically a, a slight discount, or maybe even sometimes more significant to the investment professionals. But in some cases, it's actually becoming very closely aligned with investment professionals at the, um, sim at a similar level, which, I, again, I think just speaks to the credibility and the impact that a really good business development function can add to a private equity firm. All right, I see. Um, Luke, what have, what have you seen in terms of, not specifics on numbers for comp, but more about key principles for building your ROI in the firm from a junior through mid-level? I don't know if I'm fortunate or not, but I've experienced every type of comp structure uh, in business development, <laughs> I think. Um, I'm hopeful that gone are the days of a commission structure, which was very similar to sort of an outside sales function, which I had experienced at one point. Um, you know, uh, Aaron alluded to this as well. Increasingly, if, if a firm is not looking to compensate you um, in similar ways that other functions would be compensated at that firm, then I would be, that's a red flag for me personally. And what I mean by that is if it's a structure where you only get compensated on deals you source, I don't think that aligns well with the rest of the organization. And so I'm always cautious uh, of firms that are um, suggesting that type of structure because I don't think they truly value the ROI of what a, what a, what a business development person can bring. So, you know, like at a junior mid-level perspective, you know, and we've talked a little bit about this, it's, it's really, it's, it's finding a way to be differentiated, but also having an impact. And, um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and it, it just can't solely be about volume. It needs to be about quality. It needs to be about impactful relationships and ways that you can bring that value 
along the continuum of deal making, right? Your role should not just be on the front end of bringing the deal in and, you know, Scott said it this way, tossing it over the fence. And I lived and breathed that at one point in my career as well. Um, you have to be able to find a way and bring relationships to bear through the diligence process and even post-close where you ultimately can uh, add uh, intrinsic value to the life cycle of that investment. Comp is a tricky thing because I think uh, every firm thinks about things like carry or the carry table and, and cash versus bonus differently. So I don't want to necessarily delve into the specifics there, but I do agree that one of the things, and this goes back a little bit to your first question of what do you wish you had known? I think one thing that's really important to realize is that BD is a firm-wide effort. At the end of the day, you can have folks who are dedicated to BD. You can have people whose job it is really just to focus on sourcing and, and origination, but it really is a firm-wide effort in that the entire team has to be bought in or it's just not going to work, right? You can't be an active influencer of deals or be able to provide significant value if your entire team's not bought into the notion of BD or kind of being part of that. So I think that's something really important to keep in mind. Um, I did want to circle back to your other question about marketing. Um, I've seen a lot of really interesting marketing techniques and, you know, everyone kind of rattled off a bunch of them. I would say the one thing to, to keep in mind is it's really excited to like, it's really fun to get excited about doing a podcast or doing a blog or doing this. But I think one of the keys to success there is to always have fresh content. And fresh content is not easy to produce on an ongoing basis. And so that would be my only cautionary kind of point around that. Awesome. And to the point about content, just to give somebody some the uh, attendees some practical um, takeaways here, like yes, fresh. And you can think about content in three ways, like what's industry content, what's company content and what's personal content. So if you do want to get out there and start doing stuff, like just do a simple mind map along those three categories you know, deal announcement, new hire, industry announcement, maybe like trains, uh, trends in aerospace and defense, you know, things around that content. And then we're even hosting events around that. There's so much to do, um, but surely you have a great point as opposed to just recycling ideas. Like, okay, 2020 review, I get it. Like everyone's doing it now. So we got it, it's out there. But also like how, I would actually add on to that and saying, the, the category of content that you're producing is okay as long as it's fresh and done in a, in a different way. Um, what are some things that you're seeing that you say and are you thinking it is bad content? I mean, look, it's a very subjective thing to talk about bad content, but I think it's really hard in general. And maybe this comes from my background of having to produce content for TV. It's really hard <laughs> to have unique content that's interesting, that's fresh, that's smart, that you know, someone actually wants to read. I mean, we all get gazillions of emails about trend reports and this and that. And most of the time, all of us hit delete, right? It's rare and it's hard to capture people's imagination to actually get them to read something, to listen to something. Um, our, it's so cluttered out there in terms of the volume of content you can choose from. I think to be able to stand out is not an easy thing to do. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind. So let's, let's kind of, maybe it's kind of a way to wrap this up. Let's go around the table and just kind of think, you know, in light of the past 90 minutes or so, what are the, what are the big ideas here for people who are new in BD or maybe people who have been at a firm for two to three years and they just know that they want something different. They don't know exactly what that means. And they're going through that soul searching process. Um, let's go around the table and just kind of think of the big ideas and the principles that we can leave the attendees with. 
Um, starting with Jeremy. Sure. I'd say this is an apprenticeship business. If this is really what you're passionate about and what you want to do, I don't care what the comp is. Get your foot in the door. Get somewhere where the person you're reporting to has a reputation for mentoring and spending time uh, with their team as they uh, as needed and are going to invest in your growth. Um, you know, somebody who picks a job because somewhere else is going to pay them 30000 more dollars of base, wrong candidate. I want somebody who wants to be in a great place where they can learn, they're willing to do the heavy lifting to leverage the other person's time so that they can walk alongside them and, and pick up the nuances of the job. Uh, and, you know, be proud of it. If, if Back to the earlier point, if they're viewing this as a stepping stone to the other side of, of the house, that's a wrong step. Uh, it's, it's really difficult for somebody to make that leap uh, and, and can be very counterproductive. Uh, because we're really not focused on uh, on getting the job done in in a really great way, so it's I think it's it's a great profession, uh, but you got to pick your access point and really dive in. Uh, back to the point about the MBA, I'd rather have somebody have two or three more years of deal experience uh, or of deep relationships necessarily than uh, showing off some um, the the skills. But then again, maybe I'm I'm biased because I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> I would be in that bucket too with my 2.79 GPA in college. Um, Sheila, next. <laughs> um, a couple of big takeaways. And I think uh, we've hit all of these in kind of different flavors throughout the panel. But first of all, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, think long-term, think long-term relationships, think long-term in terms of your viewpoints on companies. Think just long-term. Doesn't happen overnight. Not going to happen overnight. That's not what you should be focused on. Think about the long game. Um, second is really know your stuff. So we've talked about this also, it, know your portfolio companies, know your firm strategy, know the industry. So maybe you're specializing, but it, it goes in the category of know your stuff. Uh, people are only going to want to listen to you and want to have a conversation with you if you actually know what you're talking about. And then the last thing I'm going to put um, is in a category, and I'm just going to call the category of follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. So whether that is, how can you be helpful to someone? Uh, are you going to follow up and say, do what you said you were going to do? How are you going to make their jobs easier? Are you going to be on top of it? I'm just going to put that all in a broad category of following up. Um, that is a, still a big part of this job. You can have as many big picture meetings as you want to, but if the follow-up's not there, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, I would say that's another kind of key tenet of this job. Awesome. Uh, Aaron, Matt, and then Luke to take us home. Um, I you. Jeremy and Chile hit on a bunch already. Um, I would definitely say continue to build your network with your peer group as well. I think many um, individuals in this role today have demonstrated an ability to brainstorm also and learn from others. And you have the advantage of learning from how other firms do it actually as well, or what their business development style and strategy is. Over time, I think it is best if you're transitioning into this role to work with someone who is in business development and really, you know, be able to have a mentor. I think that is really, really important. Over time, you'll develop your own sense of um, and style, candidly. But um, there, there is definitely a track record of success um, when you look at others in business development that um, had the benefit of working alongside some of the folks even here today. Um, but building a network within business development too, I think, it is hugely helpful and. As um, Luke had mentioned, you know, sourcing deals through other sponsors um, is continuing to be like a fairly meaningful piece of, you know, uh, time spent uh, within the space. And 
I think it is helpful to build those relationships beyond like a traditional intermediary space. Awesome. Matt? Yeah, I, I alluded to this before, I think, but, you know, it, to me, it's really about finding your role in the team and, you know, owning something that, that's going to be yours, right? You know how the sausage is made. It gives you staying power from a personal career development perspective, right? You're, you're the person that takes ownership of something that's important, um, you know, within the function of the group, you know, depending on the size of your platform, um, you know, and so encourage, you know, everyone to seek that out, you know, early, I'm going to come in and run, you know, the buy side channel and, you know, our operating partner sourcing here. So I'm going to do it. Well, that makes my life easier. Right. So I think that's super value add. And then, you know, just the ethos that, you know, sourcing is, is a team sport, right. There's nothing worse culturally and, and, and professionally, um, than running around and, and throwing every deal at a deal guy because it's yours, right? I brought this in and we should do this deal and it's a good one because it has my name on it, right? That doesn't get you very far. Um, you know, BD has the ability to influence every deal that gets done, no matter where it came from or whose name's on the on the deal tracker next to it. Um, and, you know, the earlier you can adapt that mindset and realize that the team wins together, um, you know, the more successful you'll be and the more longevity you'll have, you know, in the chair. That's great. So Luke, on the looking back on the past 20 years, what have been the key principles of you being, you know, successful and getting to where you're at? And you've seen it through so many different um, models in business development and also size and shape of firms, as well as the evolution of the industry. So what are the, what are the big ideas? What are the big principles? Uh, so for me, it's, it comes to people and it really starts with um, what is it I can do for you? as opposed to what can you do for me? And I try to impart that on every young professional who wants to get into this role. Uh, we live in a very type A entitled world. And I think if you took a different approach and looked at things through the lens of how I help someone and how can I forward, it will serve you well. Um, so character attributes, be authentic, be vulnerable, be humble, um, act with integrity. These are all things that I've tried to pride myself on and I think it served me well. And, <coughs> excuse me, the last thing I would say is be patient. You never know when the opportunity will arise and patience really is, uh, you know, a key virtue to get to, to, to be successful in this role. And um, so what that means is focus on what you can control today. Don't worry about what the future holds. Focus on doing your job to the best of your ability. Focus on building your network to the best of your ability. Focus on developing impactful relationships. And um, I'm a testament to this. Doors will open uh, and you might not know when they will, but uh, be aware of when they do open and capitalize on that when they do. That is awesome. Guys, this has been 90 minutes and it's been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time with this. To the attendees, thank you. And if you have follow-up questions, please feel free to email me. If you have other topics that you want to do in future events, please feel free to email. There will be a recording of this that we'll distribute. Everyone, thank you so much for doing this. Have a great day.